Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher bakarbanu mikol hamim, venatan lanu et torato. Baruch atah Adonai, noten ha-torah. Amen. Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. Amen. Well, this week it is Parsha ki say say What? No, anyway. Kitetse. I had to get my Ashkenazi on just for a little bit. But y'all already know I'm Seth Kanaskin. So, you know, I've mixed everything up like that. And also I'm from the south side of Israel. So, south side represent, even though I have aligned myself with the north side tribe. So, tribe of Dan, you know, because we, we go hard. You know, we was we was so crazy that we were in formation in the wilderness outside the clouds of glory handling that business so bringing up the tail end of the camps but anyway that's neither here nor there for part well is it because it's parshaki tetse which is all about going out to war so yes uh the intro let's get to this intro okay so i think what i'm gonna do for the intro this week is i just want to share like some different drops um and then I'll I'll try to get into uh, 49 because, yes, this is the 49th Padasha. And then um, this is one thing I did not check before I got up in the booth. So let me get this real quick. Um, the weekly Torah portions, because remember, we're counting from uh, the first Parsha in Devarim. And so we got Devarim. Which is one, Vakanan two, Ekev three, Re'e four, Shoftim five, Kitetse is Parsha six. So it's also the sixth Parsha if we're counting from Parsha Devarim, because remember, the whole Sefer of Devarim is like a Ant-Man sized version of the Torah. If you shrink it down and like, you know, take it and put it next to all the five books of Torah together. So just like a mini-me Torah. And remember Mashiach Yeshua, he quoted from Sefer Devarim pretty much all the time, even though he quoted, obviously, many other passages of Torah, prophets, and writings. And yes, you guessed it. When you put those words together, it forms the word Tanakh. Okay, so um, Bezor HaDashem, that'll come in a separate segment. So remember, again, just for those who are podcast users on other apps besides Anchor. Um, on Anchor, I have these segments broken out so that that way you can listen to everything by topic. So the intro is a hodgepodge of things. And then um, with the help of Hashem, I stay on topic as I do the other segments. So in this intro, Kitetse, uh, we know it's when you go out to war. And I just want to point out that it says above your enemies. So, and remember, if you listen to the Aliyah Day for Yom Harishon from Rebbe Griffin, Rabbi Griffin of Sar Shalom, Battleship Lapide, um, he was talking about that when we go out to war, that we're already given the victory as we go out to war. And so he talked about gathering in divine sparks. And when we go out to these wars, they're also optional because outside of going into Eretz Israel and conquering the seven nations, 
we can expand our borders upon doing that if those borderline countries are basically becoming a moral threat to life and existence in general. I.e. if they approach the level of Amalek, because remember, you get to the end of this parsha, it's talking about remember to blot out Amalek. So let's go ahead and go there because Amalek is like crazy with it. So let's see. We're over here in 25, 17 through 18 from Devarim. It says, remember what Amalek did to you, how he met you by the way. The Hebrew word karcha, which is he met you, can also mean he cooled you. I.e., we came out on fire flame spitter, like blowing out fire from all 248 organs of 365 sinews of our human uh, physical form. Like we were just like, man, straight out of exile. And then we cross over the Yom Suf and we're going. And then all of a sudden it's like, where's the water? And then it's like, who are these people? Uh, namely, Amalek. They came up because Cloud's glory went away because we started complaining to Hashem. And so not only did we complain, but Amalek came right in. And remember, Amalek is from the word Amal, which means fruitless labor. And Amalek has the same gematria as Safek, which is the word for doubt. So you got doubt, fruitless labor, you got complaining, and you're right off of this high of like a triple, triple quadruple mega salvation, like firstborn of anyone who didn't have the blood on the doorpost and had a belief and trust in Hashem. Yeah, that's right. You couldn't just have the blood on the doorpost and be like, I'm fine. But you had to also profess your faith in Hashem by partaking of the lamb, being circumcised, you know, getting immersed into the word of God. Like it took not just blood on the doorpost. So for those who say my salvation is found in Messiah alone, you're going to have a problem because that's not how salvation works. It's good that you know Messiah. That's great. But remember, it's also wonderful if you have a car that can take you somewhere, if there's gas in it, if all the equipment on it works, and if you have a key to it, and if you actually get in the car and start driving. And you have to have a license to drive. So this is how our salvation, this is how covenant works, this is how obedience works, this is how imuna works. Because a lot of people say, oh, it's faith. And it's like, do you know what the word for faith is in Hebrew? It means those who faithfully observe the word of God, which includes commandments, but it also includes intimate working knowledge of who God is. That's why we say Torah and mitzvot is a part of our imuna in Hashem. We don't just have one or the other. We don't take out one thing and leave something else behind or get focused on things, you know, namely, yeah, not throwing shade at anybody, but we don't get focused on halakha. Okay, so say la for a moment because we're talking about having a muna. We're talking about being Torah observant and things like that. And, and I'm remembering to talk about a melek, which is funny because that's what the verse says, because I know I swerved off from a melek for a second. But talking about this aspect of Amalek cooling us, that if we focus on Halakha and forget about the whole entire picture, we're going to be in trouble. 
we're gonna fall off into that uh that dangerous pit that is right on the other side of the edge of the cliff that we step over because if you get holica focused and you get so deep into it, into the minutiae, into the extreme details. Like, I'm going to take my right hand, I'm going to wash that one first. And then I'm going to, like, go to my left, and then I'm going to go back to my right. And then maybe I might do two rights and one left. And then come back to the right to finish that third one. And then go back and finish the, the other two to complete the left. So I can have this kind of one, one, two, and then one, two, and then a you know, uh, one, you know, like you're going back and forth to make sure you get your hands immersed three times because that's the, that's the goal. Immerse your hands three times, your right hand, three times, your left hand, three times, however you want to do it. Okay. Cause guess what? If you're left-handed, you also can start washing your left hand first, you know, and yes, there's a pick up the cup with your left hand, hand it over to your right and then wash that way or pick it up with your right hand, hand it to your left and then start with your right hand. Like, so if you see just from those few details alone on hand washing, it can get really crazy. And it's just like, and we're washing our hands. Why? You lose the point of why you're washing your hands when it happens. So my whole point in bringing all this halakha up and saying if you get halakha focused, that it can cause you to literally lose your salvation. Yeah, that's right. Halakha can cause you to lose your salvation. Ask me how I know. I don't know, because maybe like three or four, no, not three, maybe like four years ago. That's what happened to me. I uh, took on the bait dean with another two gentlemen. Uh, only one of those gentlemen is still currently in our mishpachah, so Baruch Hashem. And we were all spearheaded by a group uh, that acted as the pushing hands for this force. And none of them are a part of our shul anymore. So that's interesting. And then, you know, they're also in different faiths now. Some of them don't even believe in Yeshua anymore. Some of them... Believing Yeshua still, but they don't want to do Torah. They're not Jewish and all that kind of stuff. So it's interesting how that really works. Halakha truly gets you off course, which is why if you're doing Halakha, follow your Beit Din, follow your Mishpaka, because a, a, a animal that's in the herd, typically they're safe. If they're not in the herd and then they isolate themselves or they'd be like, oh, look over here. What's that Halakha? Let me go do that by myself and forget about everybody else. That's when the wolves get you. That's when the lions get you. That's when the cheetahs get you. That's when all sorts of other carnivorous animals attack you. So, you know, you got to be careful on that. So anyway, so back to this cooling principle. A Melek works that same way. He works like, uh, let's see here. This is what the Midrash Tankuma says. It says, what is the incident of a Melek comparable to? To a boiling tub of water which no creature was able to enter. The incident of a melek. Remember, because we're on fire. We're fresh out of exile, coming out of Egypt. You know, we're in the wilderness now. We made it through the Yom Suf, which how in the world did that happen, right? Hashem is like awesome. And then a melek is like, hey, something's going on with the tribe of Israel, the nation of Israel, because they have no clouds surrounding them. They were like this impenetrable fortress and everybody was freaking out and snakes and scorpions were fleeing like snakes and scorpions of the desert. By the way, they were like super like bad. 
Like, I don't even know how to put it. Just read the Midrash on snakes and scorpions in the wilderness. Legends of the Jews by far has the best drop about how dreadful the wilderness was. And because we had the clouds of glory and the spirit of Hashem with us, you know, we had the rock, then we had the manna, and then we had, you know, the cloud in front of us that was also leading us. We had the ark that was in front of us, and then we had the ark that was in the center of the camp. Yep, two arks. But anyway, just like there are two Mashiachs. But anyway, all that was going on. But yet, something happened to where we lost, get this, one of those elements. You take out one of the elements of our salvation and Amalek comes in and, and starts to handle his business. And it's not kingdom business that he handles. And that's a problem. So anyway, um, this is why, you know, everything works as a tapestry. Keyword, tapestry. Everybody say it with me. Tapestry. Your Torah study works with your prayer, which works with your good deeds, which works with your zedakah, which works with your teshuva, which works with your amuna, which works with your halakha, which works with anything else you want to talk about that we do as Yehudim. So anyway, just because we lost one of those elements, we still had the rock, we still were getting manna, you know, uh, there, there was still the ark in front of us and there was still the cloud in front of us that was leading us. However, our clouds that were on all four sides and above and beneath us, they went away. And Amalek was like, great, we can get, we can at least get to them. We may not be successful at it, but we're going to try. And as much as we can wipe out, we're going to do it. And guess what? They did. They smote some of the people of Israel, or at least some of the people who were traveling along with the formation, because there were people outside of the clouds, by the way, they're called the Arab Rav. These are the people who were like, I know the uh, the Midrashim, some of them throw them under the bus and say, oh, they caused the golden calf. And it's like, tell me how people outside the clouds of glory are going to make the people inside the clouds of glory make a golden calf because they're outside the camp. And if you're outside the camp, you don't have any contact with inside of the camp. This is why those who had those impurities had to be outside the camp for seven days i.e. they were cut off from the general populace that was inside the camp. So tell me how you're going to say they're outside the camp, but they told us we need to make a golden calf and they actually were the ones that made it. Well, either you went outside the camp, which you defiled yourself to do that, or you were just like, eh, you know, I'm not really feeling the inside the camp life. Let's go ahead and put a golden calf together because, 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 uh, yeah, we want to. I mean, honestly, if you read Pirkei to Rebbe Eliezer, and I don't mean to say honestly, like arrogantly or whatever, but if you read Pirkei to Rebbe Eliezer, there we go, sentence structure. If you read that, it'll tell you where the golden calf came from. It came from us, Yisrael. We wanted to do what they did in exile. We wanted to do what other nations did. We wanted to celebrate holidays like everybody else celebrated holidays. Forget about Shavuot. Forget about Sukkot. Forget about not having other idols before Shem. We're going to do it. what we saw in Egypt. Macy's Day Parade on steroids. Let's do it. So in order for us to do that, we need some kind of form to fashion God into so that we can worship it and call it Him. Because that's right. When they made the golden calf, they called it Hashem. And they said, this is, these are, no, they call it these. These are your gods that delivered you out of Egypt. But anyway, so Amalek 
is like a part of this whole thing where I'm just going to go in and I might die in the process, but I'm going to take out as many as I can. So, yeah, here's your original kamikaze suicide bomber uh, mentality. That is Amelik. That's also the serpent. This is also Asaph. They are all related. Also Haman. Uh, Edom. This is how it's related. They're all connected. Cain as well. So Cain and Hevel. Okay. They're all related. Same lineage. Very scary. But, uh, you know, Brukashim. This is why we have to be aware of truly what are we doing and who are we in Hashem. Do you know who you are? Because I know who I am. And this is why, you know, we take dominion over things. I mean, Parsha Kitese, we're going to war over our enemies. Anytime we need to fight because fighting is not our natural thing. Our natural thing is Shalom. And in order to have Shalom... You have to know what war is. And in order to have shalom after going through war, you have to win that war so that you can attain that shalom. This is why we also have to war with our flesh and with our bodies, you know, which is our flesh. We have to go to war against it so that we can experience shalom because our flesh already doesn't want to keep Torah because it's so used to the earth. It wants earthly things. It has lust. It has indulgence. It has pride and things like that. So we have to fight it and we have to get to Shalom because when you're keeping kosher, when you're observing Shabbat, any of the other mitzvot that you're doing, you do experience true Shalom. The only problem is you got to get there first and then you finally realize, oh, yeah, this is kind of nice. Because I can tell you right now what I plan to read, Bezrat Hashem from the Zohar. The only reason I'm doing this podcast so early in the week is because I just couldn't take it no more. And I still haven't finished it. And so I'm just going to like straight story time this thing, like Hasis Baz style. Like, you, you, man, this is just so incredible because obviously it's about Mashiach because that's my thing. So, you know, conversion is Captain Yisrael's thing, but Shomer Man's thing is Midrash Mashiach. You know, like if I find Mashiach in the Midrash, man, you best believe I'm going crazy with it. I'm pulling out all the suits. Anyway, can I finish the Tankuma? Right. Okay. So Midrash Tankuma, talking about the incident of Amalek, why in Devarim 25, 17 through 18, we have to remember and what he did to us and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it says, so it's a boiling tub of water, which no creature was able to enter. Along came one evildoer and jumped into it. Although he was burned, he cooled it. For the others. So too, when Israel came out of Mitzrayim, and God split the Yom Suf before them and drowned the Egyptians within it, their fear fell upon all the nations. But, a big old but, when Amalek came and challenged them, although he received his due from them, he cooled off the awe in which they were held by the nations of the world. End of insert. So, because of what happened with us coming out of exile and experiencing salvation on salvation, like making it out of Egypt, first of all, how in the world did you do that? That was a miracle. That's called salvation. Then how in the world did you make it through the Yom Su for crying out loud? Like millions of people. 
How in the world did that happen? That's a miracle. So because of what happened, all the nations of the world were like, we're going to die. That's it. Israel's going to wipe everybody out. Like, oh my gosh. And it's like, well, Israel's not going to wipe you out unless you don't want to convert. Second of all, that only applies to those who are in the land of Israel, like in the borders that Hashem told us we were supposed to inherit back since Abraham, which meant the seven nations of Canaan. And they knew better because they burned half the land, if not all of it, and they destroyed, you know, all their possessions because they heard Israel was coming. So it's like, fine, well, they can come to the land, but they ain't going to have nothing to inherit. And so this is back in uh, Parsha Metzora, by the way, when it was talking about finding leprosy on your walls and stuff like that, or Za'arat, not leprosy, Slika. Uh, and it was like because some of the things that the nations did for the houses that were left standing, they hid treasure in the walls. And so when we got into the land, Hashem called Zaharat to break out in those particular homes so that those walls would have to be demolished. And then it would find out, oh, there's hidden treasure here. So just a practical point of observance for us for us all is that sometimes things go haywire in our life and it's like the uh, the epitome of what the infinity stones and the avenger movies were surrounded by we think oh this is nice possession and all of a sudden you got to break it like the tesseract was beautiful you know but thanos got it crushed it and inside of it was an infinity stone and it was like oh well that was really what we needed we didn't really need the tesseract we needed that same thing with tragedies and things that occur in our life we don't need these hardships. However, Hashem brings them into our lives and we go through them. Bezrat Hashem, we seek Hashem in it. We cry out to Him, Hashem. I'm not asking you why me, but I'm asking you, what are you trying to tell me? What do I need to make Shuva on? How can I be navigated through this? And upon doing that, Hashem cracks that open and you find hidden treasure, i.e. you either gain some insight that you couldn't have gained. Otherwise, you learn something that you get to share with someone else when they get to go through that, you know, or you have something that happens that grows you or sets you up for like a huge miracle or it just gives you such a new level of madrega is what they call it you get a new spiritual level like you become a, a, a higher powered shuva hero because remember we're shuva heroes that's why we're called avengers avengers are shuva heroes we all have some kind of superpower that hashem has given us when we make our teshuva and so the whole superhero is a shuva hero that's a jewish superhero so yes if you're making teshuva on teshuva just like we talked about uh over shabbat that you get superpowers. You are a superhero. I don't care what anybody tell you. Don't let nobody tell you. You're not. Because if you can make teshuva, if you can master your own inclinations and turn your heart to God, you might as well be because according to Pirkei Avot, you're stronger than a mighty warrior in battle. If you can overcome yourself, that that makes you a strong man. So Yeshua, when he says, when demons get cast out of the house, and unless you set up the strong man, they're going to come back worse than before. There you go. That's what that means. That means up your madrega, get some self-control, 
turn yourself to Hashem, be a, a Shuva hero, and your house will be fine. Everything will be clean. The floor will be swept. And then you'll have neighbors that want to come over and put stuff on your floor. And you're like, whoa, 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 hey, hey, hey. I just cleaned this, okay? That just got buffed. So you can take your little cracker crumbs, okay, and put those in the trash can like they belong. This is a clean house. This is how, this is how I roll. You know, so you be like, not in my house, okay? But anyway, so I, I say all that to say, the thing with Amalek is he is just such a, a entity that's just like, I don't care. I'm going to destroy what I can. What does it matter to me if I die? This is why Amalek out of all of the other nations is the only one that we're actually called to completely annihilate. Everybody else, we're not called to go out and fight them and, and keep them in our mind daily to take them out. We're supposed to be people who preach shalom. This is the end of Parsha Shof team. Like last week, we were just reading. Before you go to a city, preach shalom to it. If they don't accept that shalom, take it down. And this, again, only applies to the seven nations of Canaan that were in the land of Israel proper. Not anybody else. So don't go over to Europe and be like, hey, accept this Torah, convert or die. Or don't go do that in America. Don't go kicking over people's Xmas trees and knocking down their scarecrows and boogeymans on Halloween and stuff. Don't do that. They're not the nations of Canaan, and that's not the land of Israel. So anyway, just don't think I needed to say that. But just in case, all sorts of disclaimers have been thrown out. You have been warned. Anyway, so anyway, we just preach shalom, and that's what we do. Uh, again, so parsha kitetze, when we go out to war, uh, this is the introduction. Um you know what? I'm just going to put all of this in here. Some more drops. Uh, one of the other drops is from the Maharal. He says, but the Jewish people already expressed their desire and willingness to enter into the covenant with God. Why did God coerce them? Again, this is going back to um, where is this going back to? This is going back to when Hashem basically was um, basically how he forced the Torah upon us. This whole thing about him having the mountain over us and if it crushes us and all this kind of stuff. If we don't accept the Torah, like accept this Torah or all of the universe will be undone. That whole thing. Back to Parsha Yitro. So Maharal is bringing this down uh, in this week. Again, this is from the uh, the insights, uh, the in-depth. So let me go and get you the coordinates real quick. Kitetse um, in-depth, bring it down. Maharal, where you at, where you at, where you at. All right, we're in chapter 22 so far. Boom, boom, boom. And we're in chapter 23. All right. Thank you for your patience. All right. So Talmud Shabbat 88a. And this is quoting from Devarim 22.29. says, she shall be his wife because he has forced her. He may not divorce her all his days. 
So that's the verse from our passage. So anyway, so the Jews, the, we had already expressed, you know, because we said something like Naseve Nishma, and which is we will do and we will hear. So whatever you say, Hashem, we're going to do it. We'll learn about it later. But just know, even before we understand it, we're going to do it. This is why when you're brand new to Torah and Judaism and especially Lapid, and you don't understand why we follow Halakha and why we do all this Jewish stuff, just do it. And you'll find out later why we do it. And you'll be like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I've been wrapping my zizit around my pinky finger and pointing at the Torah saying, I don't know why we're singing this song. I'm pointing at the Torah with my pinky finger and saying, blessed be Hashem, because Moshe gave the Torah to us. I don't know. Anyway, something like that. Just don't worry about it. You'll find out later and you'll be like, wow. So anyway, uh, so it says we already expressed our willingness to enter into the covenant with God. So why did God coerce us? By the way, I just want to point out that this is a we are no longer under the law, but we are now under grace. This is where that statement comes from. It says perhaps God desired to ensure that their bond would be eternal and irrevocable by forcing himself upon them, i.e. by God forcing himself upon Israel, who was the only nation said that said the word of God, the Bible, the, the Holy Writ, the law of Moses, we're the only ones who said, yes, God will do it. Nobody else said it. So... This is why you can find out that there are other faith systems that say that they follow the Bible, but yet they don't observe the Torah. This is why. Okay, so Israel was the only one who said that they actually do. Anybody else? I don't know if they're just playing around or if they're just ignorant or like what's going on. But Israel is the only one who follows the Bible. That's why we do Jewish stuff. Jewish stuff is just a hashtag. We follow the word of God. Just want to point that out. So if you don't like that Jewish stuff, then you don't like the Bible. That's the bottom line, because Moshe said so. Anyway, um, by forcing himself upon them, he was binding himself with the law that he may not divorce her, i.e. Israel, i.e. the Jews, the Hebrews. Okay. The B'nai Avraham, Yitzhak ve'Yaakov, B'nai Sarah Rivka, Raquel ve'Leah, Ivrianoki. Okay, anyway. He may not divorce her all his days. That's from the Maharal. So this whole point about a man, you know, causing himself to force himself upon this woman and he has to, like, get married to her and stuff. Well, it's like, well, because you did this, you're no longer allowed to divorce her. Why? Because... Hashem is taking up on himself that same Torah prescription. And furthermore, if you want to say that you don't want your wife anymore, well, guess what? You caused this to happen. So this is the consequences of your actions. So um, anyway, I thought that was really amazing that another reason why Hashem is never divorced Never done with the Jews, never will be, i.e. Romans 10, 11 stuff, uh, Romans 9, 10 and 11 stuff. 
that the Jews are never out because Hashem forced himself upon us and he's our husband. He's never going to leave us, no matter how bad we are. So now we get, we probably will uh, experience some judgment stuff because if we abrogate the Torah, then we put ourselves in, in uh, harm's way. Uh, lots of pun intended on that. But anyway, uh, so yeah, so that was one thing that I thought was really interesting that Hashem, because he did the whole mountain over us thing, he can never leave us. He's like, you will marry me. And we're like, yeah, we will. We love you. And he was like, yes, because you love me, I will never leave you. So anyway, uh, I thought that was really amazing. Um, I want to talk about something from Parsha Shof Team. Page five, if you have the Shavile Pinkas, uh, I call him Shonuf Pinkus for a reason. And you're about to find out why. Because he's bringing down from the Al Sheik and Parsha Teruma Shemot 25.8. He says, they shall make me a mikdash so that I may dwell among them. And it says in the beginning of the Pasuk, the singular term mikdash is employed. However, the Pasuk concludes by employing the plural, which is among them instead of within it. So basically, Hashem says, make me one place so that I can dwell in all the people of Israel. And it's like, do you want to dwell in the Mikdash, or do you, which means, by the way, the dwelling place? And it's just kind of like, okay. Or do you want to dwell among the people? And it's like, yes, because the people all together, everyone's called the temple of God. Remember, did you not know that you're the temple of God? You've been bought with a price, that whole thing. And uh, the temple is where Hashem resides. And so he also resides among the people. So there's all that. And so it says, he explains that Hakadosh Baruch Hu wished to teach us that the ultimate goal, here's the goal, for or is for Hakadosh Baruch Hu to rest his Shekinah within the heart of every Yehudi. It didn't say every Christian. It didn't say every a uh, church follower or church goer. It didn't say every I read my Bible and I love God, but not Jewish stuff. It didn't say any of that. It said Yehudi. What is a Yehudi? A Yehudi is a person who is in covenant with Hashem, a Torah follower, a God praiser. Literally, Yehudi breaks down to God praiser. It means to cast praise to God like an arrow to shoot it towards Hashem and be like, I love you. So it's not that we're Cupid, but Cupid is trying to copy us because he's like, oh, I'll show you some love arrows. And it's like, well, you know, the true love arrows are those who say, and actually do stuff that says, I love Hashem, like follow his word and stuff. But anyway, so that's Hashem's goal. He wants to build a temple, but he's going to make us the temple. And you realize what made the temple the temple is the presence of God, which is the Shekinah, which is why Yeshua is the Shekinah, because he is the presence of God. He's just in the form of man, which is not a stretch by any form of the imagination, because what does it mean when the voice of God walked in the garden in the cool of the day came looking for Adam? What does that mean? The voice of God walking around? What does that sound like? Oh, it sounds like Yeshua. Also, when it says 
that Hashem's image in the heavenlies is in the form of a man, and it's called Zeranpin. In other words, the infinite light that exists, like the Ain Sof, getting getting Kabbalistic over here, Ain Sof, the infinite light, the invisible attributes of Hashem, when they form the form of a man, it's called Zeranpin. And this is seen in the Sephirot, i.e. the tree of life, the Kabbalah, which we know that the tree of life is the Torah. So when we're looking at the Sephirot, we need to think about the Torah. If we're looking at the Sephirot and not thinking about the Torah, then that's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's bad. And by the way, did you know the knowledge of the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is all about separating out and splicing up things, all about dividing stuff. This is why if you really look at creation from a scientific term, everything is like subtracted and divided. It's all these threes and sixes and nines and all this kind of stuff on molecular structure levels and stuff like that. Anyway, so back to this, though, uh, that the form of a shem in the heavenlies, like when the aim self takes on a form. When Hashem takes on a form, it's called Zeranpin. And that's 248 mitzvot, 365, um, uh, 248 positive mitzvot, 365 negative mitzvot. We have 248 organs and 365 sinews, which make up the human body. So Hashem's body is the positive and negative mitzvot, which is why Yeshua being the word made flesh is not anything to really go oh my gosh i can't believe it it's just like study zeron peen study the tree of life study hashem manifesting then you'll get it this is why we have to understand yeshua is more than a man if you don't believe that then you're gonna have a big problem with what is it philippians chapter 2 uh the letter to philip to philippi from uh shaul hashliak the Apostle Paul, by the way, that's how you, if you want to sound cool, if you want to say the Apostle Paul or Paul said, you can be like Paul Hashliak Amar, you know, he said, Paul said, anyway. So, yeah. So anyway, what did Shaul say? He said Yeshua was found in the likeness of man making himself into the form of a servant and giving himself in obedience even unto death. That's in chapter two. And it was all about humility. And remember, Moshe was called the most humble man. So Moshe is the beginning of the picture of who Mashiach is. Mashiach just gives us that fuller picture. What is true humility? It's when the Ain Sof manifests into the lowest form, which is human flesh, and then can subdue all of its passions in humility and give himself over to death. And that's what I mean by lowest form. Cause when we're given over to death, we're even lower than the animals. Cause at that point we've just like gotten rid of everything because the wages of sin is death. So when you sin, you abrogate that, which makes you holy, which is your observance of Torah. So because you observe Torah, because you make Teshuvah, you get filled with more and more of the spirit of God. You get born again and you get born again and you become a new creation and Mashiach and all this kind of stuff. You become like an angel among men at that point, just like Adam was before he sinned. 
you know, you start attaining those madregot, those levels. And so when you lose more and more and more and more, you lower yourself all the way down to the point of death. It's like you're no different from the animals at that point. And so you get also put into the ground, which now you're lower than like inanimate creation itself, because now you're lower than the dust. You know, so I think it's interesting that we're buried six feet deep and even uh, we're covered in materiality at that point. So materiality even becomes higher than we are. So if you think about the coffin that we're put in, you know, it's supposed to be put in a, uh, just a pure plain pine box, you know, with all, all that other stuff added to it. And so, you know, in our kittle has no pockets, you know, we're buried in garments that have no pockets and burial shrouds. So materiality is like so far above us at that point, And we're powerless because we were dead. So anyway, Zeron Payne did that and it was called the death of Mashiach Yeshua. But guess what? That wasn't the end of the story. But anyway, back to all chic and Shavile Pincus. So he says, we've learned in the Mishnah of 036, even if a Jew studies Torah alone, the Shekinah is with him. And by providing Hakadosh Baruchu with a dwelling place in Elam Hazeh in this world, he is rewarded Mita Keneged Mita with a dwelling place in Gan Eden, which is in the world to come. So if you want to get a place in the world to come, i.e. if you want to go to heaven, you better be studying Torah and like meaning it. Anyway, uh, it goes on to say, this then is the message conveyed by the Pasuk. Who is the man who has built a new house? Now we're in Pasha Shof team because remember, there are people who don't have to go to war if they get a little kind of like, uh, I don't know about this. It's like, did you build a new house and have you gotten to inaugurate it? No, I haven't. Okay, get out of here. Go home. Like literally go home and inaugurate your home. Uh, did you just get like betrothed and not get to marry your wife yet? Uh, yeah, you get out of here. You go. Did you just plant a vineyard? Yeah, yeah. you get out of here. You go. Okay. Like, so anyway, all that stuff. So it says, so if the man who has built a new house, it says whose portion, which is a house in Ghani Den has already or has been ready for him since the day the Torah was given. Like that's the meaning of that passage. So, you know, you're creating Hashem a dwelling place when you're studying Torah. So he's like, well, fine, I'm going to make you a house. So behold, I prepare a place for you when Yeshua says that. That's what he means. All right. So Gemara Berakot or Brakot uh, 57a uh, regarding Devarim 33.4. It says the Torah which Moshe commanded us is the heritage of the congregation of Yaakov, i.e. Jews. It says now do not read the word in this Pasuk as Morashah, which is inheritance but rather as me or rasa, which means a betrothed one. This pasuk implies that the Torah was betrothed to Yisrael like a woman to her husband. So you know the whole thing where we're the bride of Mashiach? Well, our bride is the Torah, which means Yeshua, who is the Torah, is also our bride. So he's our, our husband, but like we're his husband. And then like, He's our bride, and then like we're the husband, and then we're the bride, and then he's the husband. So if you kind of look at the the back and forth there, it's kind of like wow. So this is why you can look at the Keruvim on the art cover. Some say it was two boys, namely Esav and Yaakov, being reconciled, 
or it's uh, you know a boy and a girl, and it's representative of the Shekinah, which make up the female aspect of Hashem. But then you got Zerah and Pin, which is the masculine aspect, you know, and so like a boy girl keruv on top of the ark and so they embrace one another or they're turned from one another depending on how we're acting as a nation so all that kind of stuff so anyway just a little uh take that up a notch from the pashat and this also says that it is evident that if a man is devoted to torah like a man is to his wife then he will merit in kind that hakadosh baruku will betroth him Le atid lavo, which means in the time to come. So then it goes on to say, as we know, every Jew has a portion in the Torah that can that only he can reveal. The Chesed Le Avraham expresses this fact as follows. Every individual's neshama is associated with a specific part of the Torah, which cannot be revealed by anyone else. That particular neshama must reveal its particular secrets. If that neshama fails to reveal those secrets, Hakadosh Baruchu does not reveal them to any other Zadokim other than Moshe Rabbeinu. For even Hidushim, by the way, Hidush, uh, not to be fused, not to be confused with Kiddush or Kiddush or Kiddush. Because there's so many different ways you can change the inflection to say that word. Chidush with a chet uh, is the word we use at Sar Shalom for when we say, oh, I got a drop. Or, hey, you got a drop. You know, like some kind of insight or whatever. It's called a chidush. So anyway, it says, so chidushim is the plural version of chidush. Okay. So for even chidush destined to be revealed by veteran Torah scholars in the future were conveyed to Moshe. However, he was not permitted to reveal them to anyone. This is implied by the depiction in my entire house. He is the most trustworthy. Moshe is so trustworthy that he knows future Hidushim from people who are going to exist throughout the generations. Like, I don't know, all chic. Maimonides, Nachmanides, uh, Rabbi Monk, Rabbi Rabbeinu Bakia, uh, Ankelos. Moshe knew all that stuff, but he never revealed it. He was like, man, that's so awesome. I ain't telling nobody because Ankelos is going to be born one day and he's going to tell somebody. And so, you know, that's just a lesson for us that each one of us, as we are uh, refining ourselves and growing and increasing in Torah, that Hashem has a, a specific chidush that only you have that you're supposed to reveal to the world. Maybe you do it on a podcast. Maybe you do it at work. Maybe you do it on a YouTube video. Maybe you do it on a blog post. Maybe you do it on your Facebook page. I don't know. Only Hashem and you know that. But Moshe already knows it, and it's up on you to expose it. Moshe already knows it, but it's up on you to expose it. Anyway, that goes for everybody who is doing that. Because the only way to get to your neshama is to overcome your ruach and your nefesh, 
which is your personal passionate desires. And your nefesh is like, I'm hungry, I'm tired, I'm like angry and all that kind of stuff. So you have to do that. And then you have to take over your thoughts, your speech and your deeds, which all in your, in your ruach. And then you're in a shama, like your will seat, like I'm going to do this, like I'm in it. I don't care how horrible of a person I've been. I don't care how much I'm struggling. I'm going to press strain towards the high mark of the upper call in Mashiach Yeshua. And as I said on Shabbat, that's just what we do. Okay. It's the month of Elul. It's put up or shut up. Like that's just what it's got to be. And so sometimes when you're fighting, you know, it's ugly. You know, sometimes you got to bite an elbow or you got to like poke somebody in the eye when you're fighting, but you got to win. And guess what? The person we're fighting is not a person of Shalom. It's a person that wants to take us out. So by all means necessary, go cray cray. So with that being said, that's the end of the intro. And let's get into 49. Stand by. Okay, so 49. So check out 49. So we're in Parsha Kitete. It's the 49th Parsha. Again, it is the sixth Parsha of Sefer Devarim. So let's get a drop on six and then go straight to 49. Six is all about natural. It represents the full physical expression in the natural world. This is why the Vav, which is represented by the letter six, is also speaks of Mashiach because Mashiach is the fullness of physical expression in the natural world. And remember, everything physical has a spiritual counterpart. So Yeshua HaMashiach is like all of the spiritual and the physical, like given in full manifest expression, i.e. what was Adam intended to be when he was created? Because Adam was created divine. First of all, you got to know that Adam was clothed in supernal intellect as brought down Rabbeinu Bakya. So he was like all seeing, all knowledgeable. He could see to the end of the universe from one end of the world to the other, like like the light of the sun that shines across the earth, like Adam could see like all of that and more. He was as big as the world, uh, the earth, that is like he spanned like all of creation. So just getting more acquainted with Adam, uh, by the way, this is Pirkei de Rebbe Eliezer and Sarabainu Bakya from Parsha Kedoshim. That's my sources on that. Uh, and you can also send me a message on Anchor and uh, if you want any more information on that, and I can get you all connected. But anyway, so there's something about Kitete that's going to bring us into a fullness of expression. And why not this? Page 103 in the Jewish Wisdom of the Numbers says that Shema Yisrael, that first phrase is six words, says in a three-dimensional plane, a cube joins six sides of the same object into one entity. In truth, one looking at it from the outside cannot possibly see all of its six sides at once. Still, by observing it from all directions, he can rightly conclude that they're all part of the same single reality. This, too, is true of the physical world. The different elements integrate to form one reality. Every side contributes and is combined into that equation. This concept is vividly brought out in the opening phrase of the Shema, which is Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, 
Adonai our God, Adonai is the one and only. Uh, newsflash, if you're a Trinity follower, believer, subscriber, or theology person of that sort, uh, tell me where you see the Trinity in Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, because it says Echad, Hashem is Echad. It means a compound unity, yes, but it doesn't say it's only three. So if you start splicing out Hashem just down to three forms, again, you're going to take out who Hashem is because Hashem is the fullness of creation and even outside of it. This is the understanding of Hashem is called Hamakom. He is the place because he has the place inside of him. He is the place of the place. This is why in him we live, move, and have our very being. All right. So anyway, that may not be a good enough explanation for you, but I just want to let you know you will get into all sorts of quagmires and conundrums if you think Hashem is a trinity. Uh, anyway, so this is why Abraham never taught about it. Neither did Moshe, neither did David, neither did Shlomo, and neither did Yeshua, and neither did Shaul. Okay, so... This verse specifically uh, composed of six words beautifully emphasizes how all of reality, like the six directions of the physical realm, is actually part of the same integrated reality under the unified rule of God. And this has a corresponding six word statement. Baruch Shem Kevod Malkuto Leolam Va'ed. Blessed be the name of his glorious kingdom forever and ever. All right. So, yeah, so there's your six. And by the way, there are six orders of Mishnah, which make up what's called the Oral Torah. So it's commonly called the Shas, which is the six orders of Mishnah. And uh, so, yeah. So it says, this is the Torah, Sheba Al-Pei, i.e. the Oral Torah. The Torah, which gives permanence to the world, is divided into the written Torah and the oral Torah. So it's one, but it's really two, just like Yeshua HaMashiach is Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David. If anyone tells you, I don't know why you believe in that Yeshua HaMashiach guy, because he didn't bring world peace. It's like, well, did you know Mashiach ben Yosef wasn't supposed to bring world peace? He was supposed to give the world the opportunity to come to peace because when Mashiach ben David comes, he's going to make war so that there will be world peace. It's a two-part story, like the same thing we saw in Pasha Shoftim. First part of going out to war, go preach alone. Make sure you don't kill anybody that actually wants to convert, and that's actually a divine spark. Then you can go in and handle your business. Okay, so anyway, that's what Yeshua did. That's why he said, go out and make Talmudim of the nations, because I need you to go out and gather those divine sparks. Make sure everybody's in covenant, because when Mashiach ben David is revealed, those who aren't in covenant will have some difficulty. Now, 49. 4 plus 9, by the way, is 13, which is the gematria of Echad, also the gematria of Ahava. Echad is one, which is Hashem, because he is one. And so how do you bring all, all of uh, physical reality into unification? It's in Hashem through the Shema. This is why it's the greatest commandment, because it unifies everything that's separated. And so literally bringing world peace starts with the Shema. Also, 
Ahava is love. And remember, if you love God, you'll keep his commandments. And again, the greatest of those commandments is the Shema. So how do you express love to the fullest? It's through the Shema. All right. So 49, though, it says 49 is the picture of purity versus impurity. This is the maximum quota man can symbolically attain finds further expression in the opposite measures used for interpreting Torah. So, you know, the thing where Rabbi so-and-so says in the name of Rabbi so-and-so, and then it says, but Rabbi so-and-so in the name of Rabbi so-and-so disagrees. And then this is what he says. And then even in the uh, in-depth on this week's parsha, Kitetse, uh, Nachmanides was saying one thing, Maimonides was saying another thing, and they were both disagreeing, but agreeing with each other. And then it was just kind of like even Rashi was saying something different and the Talmud was saying something different. And so it was just kind of like, well, who are we going with? Obviously, we're going to go with Talmud. But all of them were actually reconciled together, which is why all of those commentaries are necessary. So why do I give such a crazy introduction about Kitete about this? Because warfare is also a level of interpreting Torah that you should be going to war above your enemies. When you're interpreting the Torah, you don't have time to be fighting with one another that this is what this means. This is exactly what it says or saying something to the fact this is the halakha. This is how we're supposed to do it. And we don't do it any other way but this. There is a wonderful Shuva hero named um, Agent Echad who sent me probably one of the most glorious things that I've ever heard in my entire life from the author of the Shulchan Aruch, which is Yosef Haro. And uh, it says that, uh, let's see, the halakhic rulings in the Shulchan Aruch generally follow the Sephardic law and customs, whereas Ashkenazi Jews will generally follow the halakhic rulings of Moshe Ezerless. Okay, so first of all, if you're an Ashkenazi Jew and you're trying to tell somebody to follow Shulchan Aruch, you have a personal problem because your root is not the Shulchan Aruch. Anyway, so that probably was uncalled for. Uh, it says, who's uh, the Moshe Israelis, which is the Ashkenazi generally following that. It says, who glo whose glosses to the Shulchan Aruch note where the Ash or where the Sephardic and Ashkenazi customs differ. So in the Shulchan Aruch, it says, you know, the Sephardi law and customs, and then the Moshe Ezerlis will come in and be like, but this is the Ashkenazi way to do it. And so it's just kind of like, but here's the Halakha, Sephardi style. And then Moshe Ezerlis will come in and go, okay, but if you're Ashkenazi, do it this way. So let's do some connecting the dots, follow the bouncing ball over each of these words. Here's one point of Halakha. It can be done in multiple different ways. But guess what? Some way the halakha will be kept. So go back to interpreting the Torah. There's 49 uh, measures of doing this. And so it, this is why Yeshua would say things like, what does the law say and how do you interpret it? Because I'm here to help you interpret the law because I said I came here to fulfill it. Because when Yeshua says I came to fulfill the law, it, it, it means to correctly interpret the Torah. 
Uh, that's the Jewish meaning of fulfill the law. This is why if you're a person who reads the Besorah or any of the letters or the account of Acts or Revelations, if you don't know anything about Judaism, you will come to uh, have understanding. You will not get the fullness of it. You may get some of it, which is totally cool, but you won't get everything that it actually means because everything was written to the Jews, not to anybody else. And I know you may say, but what about Shoal? Didn't he say I'm writing to the Gentiles? Yes, the Gentiles who were converting to Judaism. He didn't just write to anybody who was just like, oh, you serve the Greek gods? Okay, cool. Well, let me tell you about the word of God, that you should follow it as you worship your Greek gods. Because, by the way, most of these unbiblical holidays have some root in like the Greek, uh, Roman, Egyptian um, idolatry, paganism. This is why it's taught against that we shouldn't be doing things like Xmas and Halloween. Trace all those holidays back to their origins and I guarantee you they line up somewhere with one of those. So this is why it's important to note people like the congregation in Colossae or Corinth or Rome or Philippi or anybody that was scattered among the nations that Kepha was writing to and Yaakov was writing to. These were people who were Torah observant. They were either brand new to Torah or getting introduced to Torah and were like, hey, I'm thinking about converting, so I'm not really sure yet. However, I am done with being a pagan. So there's that. So by the time you're done with being a pagan, by the way, you're already a Jew because a Jew brought down by Megillah, Tractate Megillah, I believe it's uh, 13a. If not, it's 14a, one of those. And it brings down that a Jew is one who repudiates idolatry. And remember, a Jew is a B'nai Abraham, son of Abraham, i.e. a believer in Mashiach because Mashiach is Torah. So all of that. So anyway, um, that's important to note. Then let me go back to this little Shulchan Aruch drop real quick. It says these glosses are widely referred to as mapa, literally the tablecloth, because Shulchan Aruch means a set table. And I'd like to point out, this is the Shomer man, Met Midrash on that. Shulchan Aruch being a set table, the halakot, the halakha that we read about in all of these halakhic uh, compilations. It is like when you set a table, when you invite someone over to your house and you set the table, they don't you don't force them to eat everything on the table. They partake of what they would like to partake of. Sometimes it's everything. If it's me, I'll eat everything but beets. OK. And that's just how I roll and yams. I won't eat your yams or your beets, but I'll eat everything else, especially your holla. So anyway, uh, but that doesn't mean that. You know, we dismiss the halakha or we just go, yeah, we're going to make up our own because we don't want to do that. That just simply means we're eating at the table. OK, and nobody brings in, you know, little mud worms and sits it on this finely uh, set table. I know some of the, the Eshek Hayils are probably like, I wish you would defile my Shabbat table with a bucket of mud worms like oh, boy, I choke you so fast. Anyway, don't choke anybody. That's a capital crime. It could be seen as murder, so you might go to jail. So don't do that. Thank you, Stav Soldat, for bringing that up. Oh, side note, while I'm talking about Shuva heroes, Yovel, A-I-E, Chasya. I just want to say shout out to her. It is her parsha this week. So yom yom hulad at sometime this week. Anyway, 
Um, Mazal Tov is her parasha, Kitete. Back to Shulchan Aruch, though. So anyway, so that's what it's like with the Halakot. It says, uh, and Karo, usually referred to as the author, and Izolis is uh, the Rema, which is the acronym of Moshe, Mo, uh, Rabbi Moshe Izolis. So anyway, that's how that works. Uh, Shulchan Aruch, based off of uh, earlier work by Yosef Karo. Uh, let's see here. He intended to rely on his own judgment relating to differences of opinion between various authorities. So if anyone tells you we follow the Shulchan Aruch only and that's the only way to be Torah observant. Again, Yosef Karo says this is his own judgment. He's that was his intention. And it's differences of opinion between various authorities. Anyway, so that's the Halakha horse, and I've beaten it to death. All right, so back to this, though. Interpreting Torah, same way. Because there are 49 sides, called faces, to prove that something is pure, or, or and a cores corresponding 49 sides, faces, to prove something is impure. One of the sages declared, I can purify a dead insect in a total of 49 ways. This was not a boast about the use of logic or the manipulation of exegesis, which again, Torah interpretation, to vindicate something that the Torah explicitly forbids. Rather, this was a self-professed testimony by a Talmud scholar. In order for you to be a Talmud scholar, you might as well be considered like, I don't know, somebody just insanely crazy who you would like feel just so horrible to sit in their presence because you're like i should be not sitting here you should be like away from me you person of high knowledge anyway because in order to be a talmud scholar you got to know some stuff you can't just be like oh i read the talmud it's like really because because you know the only way to do that is to be a talmud scholar and you probably have to know hebrew and you would definitely be a nice person who wouldn't boast or brag about stuff. Because if you're a Talmud scholar, that's one of the basic things that you learn. You're not above anybody. Actually, you're beneath everybody. You consider yourself like dust in a field. And everybody walks in fields if they want to. But anyway, it says, rather, this was a self-professed testimony of a Talmud scholar about his all-encompassing grasp of the topic. He had mastered the full measure of 49 dimensions to discern the breadth of factors involved in a Torah ruling. So what am I saying? So when you get down to interpreting Torah, there is at least 49 ways to prove a kosherness of it or an unkosherness of it. And in order for you to do that, you have to be a Talmud scholar. So if we talk about I don't know, for example, a vessel, like a silver vessel or something. And it's like, if this was put in this place, you know, say some kind of impure place, it's just like, okay, so tell me how that thing is going to be pure now, because, you know, there are certain things that if it happens to a vessel, it defiles it, you can't use it anymore. It's just like, okay, so there are 49 ways to make it, okay, we can't purify this thing, but there's also 49 ways to say, actually, this can be made pure. So, that's what that is basically saying. It says the quality of truth in Torah is even present 
and reasoning or arguments that are ultimately rejected in the final ruling. A holistic view incorporates all the opinions involved in a dispute. Each opinion is factored into the equation. This is why conflicting opinions in rabbinic literature are an integral part of the Torah. The phrase is, these and these are the words of the living God. Hence, the final ruling would be bequeathed to the sages of each generation to determine. And by the way, that is all found in Eruvin 13b and Rashi on Ketubot 57a. Have fun reading those if you pull those sources out. Also, would just like to point out there's an understanding that we can make all the halakhic rulings that we need to make while we don't have a Sanhedrin. And when Eliyahu comes and when Mashiach returns, it'll all be worked out. So until then, this is why we have our different communities. This is why every halakhic point always ends with, but check with your rabbi on this. And that's why we have to have a rabbi, first of all, because we have to have someone who can we can trust, who is a person of uh, not ill repute, but a person of good repute, i.e. they're humble, they don't lord themselves over everyone, and they don't say, I'm your God, follow me and don't listen to Hashem. These are people who lead you to Hashem, and they interpret halakha through going throughout all the different uh, opinions and halakhic authorities that have been brought down previously, and then they make their ruling. Namely, for an example, at Sar Shalom, we play music on Shabbat because when you get through all the different opinions and arguments about playing music on Shabbat, it all boils down to the ruling of the opinion, not necessarily a ruling because it wasn't ruled by the Sanhedrin. But it was brought down from sages of previous generations that we should not play music on Shabbat because the temple was destroyed. And the when the temple was destroyed the first time, it was only for 70 years. So what's another 70 years without music? However, when the second temple was destroyed, we don't know how long it's going to be until we get a new temple. And it's been over 2000 years almost. It's been about 2,000 years since we had a temple because it was destroyed in 70 CE of the common era. So we got we're in 2020 or 2019 now. So we got a little bit of time. But who says we want to go 2,000 years without a temple? Uh, anyway, uh, if a day is like a thousand years with Hashem, then we're almost at a two day point. And apparently Hashem doesn't allow the righteous to suffer for no more than two days. But anyway, uh, so when we talk about these, uh, the precedents that have been set down, well, music is played on Shabbat because music was played in the temple on Shabbat and we don't go without music now. this is why if you check on Spotify, there are Jewish artists who are doing music and then you listen to the commentaries that Rabbi Trugman brings down. He talks about how music gets you into a spiritual prophetic posture and it can cause a sad person to become joyful. And we're supposed to be in a state of joy on the Shabbat. So we play music. So anyway, so that's why our rabbinic authority has established that we do that. So Baruch Hashem. So that's 49. So this is why we can't just 
uh, rail over people when they come up with a uh, an interpretation. Uh, one of the things I personally got to experience on Shabbat was about the tearing of the clothing. The teachings of the Talmud Humash, uh, the green one on, from Archcroll, was talking about tearing your garment and mourning. And it says you're not allowed to rip your garment all the way, but you're supposed to tear it just enough and not too much. Because if you tore your garment too much in a state of mourning, then you would actually get lashed for that. Like you would receive lashes. And so we were talking about how the veil then couldn't have been torn all the way. Not saying that it couldn't have. Maybe it was. But seeing this precedent now, we can see that there was a limit to how much uh, mourning, how much grief that Hashem would actually show over the death of his Mashiach. That he tore the veil, but he didn't tear it all the way. Just like you don't tear your garment all the way. And then... You know, it wasn't that we were going for saying the veil was not completely torn. The point is, we know the veil was torn, but we know if we look at that precedent that's brought down the commentary, when did Hashem do anything to rip his garment? Well, he, the temple is a manifestation of Hashem. And so in the temple, he displayed physical grief through the tearing of the veil. And then it was kind of like, okay, so... We're looking at the veil and tearing your garment. Okay, cool. Now, it wasn't ripped all the way. Is that what you're really saying? The veil wasn't completely torn. It was just ripped just enough. And it's like, yeah. And furthermore, Hashem didn't kick over the shulkan, the, like the showbread table. He didn't destroy the menorah. He didn't like kick over the outer courtyard altar. He just tore the veil and like just enough to show I'm in grief. Like this is a sad day for me. And then it's like, wow. And then another person tagged in and was like, yeah, because... If you tear your garment, you don't rip your clothes all the way off and run around naked. Like, that's not right. That ain't kosher. It's like, wow. Okay, so maybe Hashem didn't tear the veil. Yes and no on that. But the point is, he tore the veil and that was an expression of grief. And there was a limit. You know, he one aspect of the temple was showing an aspect of grief. And so just thought that was cool. So just something to keep in mind. Uh, especially as I've encouraged everyone to be a part of study groups and text groups and things like that, that you can share with each other and have a mediator, you know, keep this in mind that you're all going to come up with different perspectives and views and things that you see that can either support one another or tear down each other. But the goal is not to tear down one another, but synthesize those points. Just like we did with the veil. So don't get caught up in the minutia of insights and commentaries, but work together. And this is Kitetse, because in order for you to be victorious over your enemy as you go out to war, you have to work together with the forces. OK, so in your army, you got to work together with the people around you. So Lapid Nation, we got to work together with one another if we want to bring the salvation and redemption to the entire world. So Baruch Abba Hashem Adonai. And uh, the final segment I'd like to finish with is this insanely, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself, Zohar drop, uh, which I have a few more drops that I want to kind of share before I do that. So I'll say that for the final segment. But anyway, this is Parshaki Tetze. It's the sixth portion of Devarim, and it is also the 49th Parsha overall. Also, just remember, 49 is the gematria of Memtet, 
like the mem and the tet, which speaks of the teacher of the way and also speaks of the entryway to God. Like if you want to come to the father, it's through the son who is the path of life. And there's a guardian on that path. And that's called the flaming sword, which is the Torah. So Memtet is also Torah. Anyway, Brukashim. All right. So we're bringing it home. Parashakitetze. I don't even know how I can say that. Like, how are we bringing it home so far, so fast? All right. So just a couple of things. Again, this is from the in-depth. This is from Talmud Sanhedrin 71a. It says, a wayward and rebellious son. Remember the one who's supposed to get, like, crucified and hung on a tree and stoned and all that kind of stuff? Well, check this out, because Rabbi Griffin brought it up in the Aliyah Day that this never happened. Well, guess what? He was right. Not that we doubted him, but it's also good to have sources. Sanhedrin 71a says, A wayward and rebellious son never was and never will be. It never was and it never will be. So why was it written in the Torah? So that it should be studied and we should be rewarded for studying it. Rabbi Yonatan says, I saw such a case and I sat at his grave. So a wayward and rebellious son is not really anything that can happen. But yet Rabbi Yonatan says, I saw such a case and I sat at its grave. So it's like, what are we going to go with? OK, remember 49? There's ways to point it out and ways to not. Uh, the whole purity and impurity. So did this ever happen or did this ever happen? The answer is yes. How? Sanhedrin 71a. Another one. Uh, this is from the Hasidic Insights. The uh, Inner Dimensions brings down the restrictions on conversions about the Moabite and the Edomite and the Ammonite or the Egyptian and the whole thing about the Moabite, the Edomite are not allowed to enter the kingdom as a convert. So check this out. It says, nowadays restrictions no longer apply since already in the era of the first temple, i.e. 6th century BCE, King Sennacherib of Assyria, which by the way preceded the Babylonian exile. It was Assyria, then Babylon. Northern kingdom got taken out first by Assyria, then Babylon came in and wiped out the southern kingdom. Okay, then we were truly in exile. So this is why Assyrian exile is not really considered an exile because it just took out the northern tribes who had already separated themselves from Hashem anyway. Anyway, um, so the first ones to idolatry. And interestingly enough, Yeshua was born and pretty much took up his headquarters in the northern kingdom section of Israel. So the first place that was sent out in the exile was the first place exper that experienced the redemption so bringing us back in, starting with those who left first, the first shall be last and the last shall be first kind of thing. OK, so King Sennacherib of Assyria mingled all the non-Jewish nations in his empire, including these together. It is therefore no longer possible to definitively determine who is a Moabite, an Ammonite, an Edomite or an Egyptian. Therefore, any non-Jew who desires to convert is presumed is presumed to be one of the majority of the Gentiles whose converts are permitted to marry born Jews without restriction. 
So not only can a non-Jew convert, and you can't be like, well, are you a Moabite? Are you an Edomite? Are you an Egyptian? It's like, well, I don't know. It's like, great. You can convert if you want to. And you can also marry born Jews. And there should, no, should not be any restrictions. So again, that happened before Yeshua. This is why Yeshua said, go out into all the nations and make them into converts. Because there are no restrictions. Uh, another thing from the Hasidic Insights, it says the antidote to a Melech is to remember, i.e. to keep the holy words of the Torah in the forefront of our consciousness. Also, it says we are first informed that those who experience sublime pleasure in their relationship with God and are thereby inspired to exert themselves to fulfill their divine mission. Check this out. Beyond the letter of the law. Oh my gosh, are you serious? Beyond the letter of the law? Like, didn't Shaul Hashliach write about that to Corinth? He said, not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. Well, yep, that came from Torah. Okay, again, he was speaking to Jews who study Torah portions. So this is why we should. Okay, divine mission beyond the letter of the law will be rewarded by receiving further, more transcendent, Revelations of divinity and divine beneficence. Uh, in the words of the Gottfone, Avraham from the Habdala Bracha, may this week arrive for kindness, for good fortune, for blessing, for success, for good health, for wealth and honor, and for children, life and sustenance, and for us and for all Yisrael. Amen. Okay. Finally, Zohar. This is from Sosino Presadicion, because I know I've got to say it like that. Um, volume 3. This is Shemot. Uh, I believe uh, this is 8B. I'm picking up an 8B, but I'm going to be between 8A and 9B. So all of those sections is just like pages and pages of amazingness. So remember Yeshua saying birds have nests, fox have holes, but the son of man has no place to lay his head, i.e. I'm in exile, I don't have a home. And guess what? If you follow me, you won't have a home. You will be in exile until I have a home. Well, check this out. This is what it says in those bunches of pages. One of the things it says, as soon as the Messiah has been installed by the saints in paradise, he will enter again the place which is called the bird's nest, there to behold the picture of the destruction of the temple and of all the saints who were done to death there. Then he will take from that place ten garments, the garments of holy zeal, and hide himself there for 40 days, and no one shall be able to see him. At the end of those 40 days, a voice shall be heard from the highest throne, calling the bird's nest and the Messiah, who shall be hidden there. And again, this is in chapter 22 in Parsha Kitetse about sending away the mother bird before you take the, the babies or the eggs. And so the bird's nest is the dwelling place of Yeshua. And so him being sent away, he says, better for better for you that I go. And uh, if I don't go, then, you know, your comforter won't come. And so the mother bird has to be sent away. I.e. Yeshua has to be sent away from his nest so that what needs to get done is done. 
So check this out. Going down a little bit, I'm now in uh, 8B-9A. It says the the word Ephroa, which means young bird from Devarim 22.6. It says that these are the little infants at school. Okay, the little ones who go to Torah school. It says uh, all who are diligent in the story of all who are diligent in the study of the Torah, and there shall be few such in the world who will gather around Yeshua. Because it says that um, at the time of Shiach is revealed in the end, Torah scholars will be few. This is why we're seeing that at Lapid, we're like the few, the proud, and the, the humble. You know, the brave, the few, and the proud, like Marines type thing. All right. So anyway, it says, uh, so these are young birds, the people who are sitting in the Torah academies who are learning it says, and if such will not be found at that time, it will be through the merit of the sucklings, which are the eggs, those that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast as in Yeshayahu 22, nine, for whose sake the Shekinah dwells in the midst of Israel in exile. So when Yeshua is sent away, we can go out into the nations and we can go get those those eggs, get those babies and, and bring them in. And so this is why this mitzvah is so crazy that you have to read so much commentary like Rashi and, and things like that in your Humash, because it talks about this mitzvah actually hastens the return of Mashiach. And it's basically a, a drop, a pharisaical view of going out to make proselytes. So I'm going to keep going because check this out. It says that uh, for this, whose sake the Shekinah dwells in the midst of Israel in exile, as indeed there will be few sages at that time. This is the implication of the words and the Dom sitting upon the young or upon the eggs, which allegorically interpreted means that it does not depend upon the mother to free them from exile, but the Supreme King for its young ones and the sucklings that will give strength to the Messiah. Then the supernal mother, which sits upon them, will be stirred upwards or stirred up towards her spouse. He will tarry for 12 months longer and then he will appear and raise her from the dust, i.e. I will raise up on that day the tabernacle of David that has fallen from Amos 9 verse 11. And it says on that day, Mashiach will begin to gather the captives from one end of the world to the other. So stirred up towards her spouse. Raised from the dust, rebuilding the tabernacle of David. That is resurrection talk. This is why Yeshua was raised up, stuck around for 40 days, and then he ascended. Okay, and during those 40 days, he was hidden and revealed. Hidden and revealed. Okay, so that's why Yeshua had all those disappearing moments during that time. Because this right here in the Zohar is telling us about when Mashiach comes, this is what's going to happen. So then it says, if any of yours be driven out to the uttermost parts of heaven, from there will Adonai, your God, gather you. Devouring 30 verse 4. Now, they talk about this is another rabbinical interpretation that there is a Mashiach. Because the written Torah never teaches about Mashiach. Only the rabbis do. 
So if you believe in Messiah, you are listening to the rabbi. So good job. Okay, so again, but it says that God will gather you, but yet the interpretation is Mashiach is going to gather us. So is it God or is it Mashiach? The answer is yes, because remember, Mashiach is a manifestation of Hashem. Mashiach is Hashem's right hand, furthermore. And remember, your arm is a part of your body. So you can't say, well, it's it's my body, it's my arm, and it's my foot. It's like, okay, so if you separate any parts of those, they become useless. So again, this is why we don't divide up Hashem into a trinity, because we don't want to make Hashem useless. Because if we focus too much on the Son, we forget about the Father, we forget about the Spirit. If we focus too much on the Spirit, then we forget about the Father, we forget about the Son. Focus too much on God, then we forget about the Son. This is mainly who Mashiach was talking to during his ministry here. And he was like, if you did, if you, if your father was Abraham, then you would, you would trust me. You would do the works that Abraham would do. Like believe in me and not hate me, not reject me because you only, you know, you want God, right? So you're searching throughout the scriptures. You're looking for me and here I am. It's just like, okay, so if you're too focused on these different aspects of who Hashem is and not putting a complete package together, you either miss Mashiach you miss covenant, you miss Torah, you miss something. You got to have it all. Just like on Pesach night, there was circumcision, blood on the doorpost, and the lamb being roasted and eaten. And everybody was doing Seder. So anyway. All right. So uh, it says, from that day on, the Holy One will perform for Yisrael all the signs and wonders which he performed for them in Egypt. As in the days of your coming out of the land of Egypt, will I show unto him wonders. Micah 7 verse 15 says, Then Rabbi Shimeon, Eliezer, my son, you can find or you can find all this in the mystery of the 32 paths of the holy name. Before these wonders have taken place in the world, the mystery of Hakadosh will not be manifest in perfection and love will not be awakened. Ye daughters of Yerushalayim, which by the way, uses the word Betula for daughters. And this is the word for virgins. This is why when you make pilgrimage or when you make Aliyah to Yerushalayim for Pesach, Shavuot, and for Sukkot, the three pilgrimage festivals, you're likened to a virgin. So, your virginity actually comes from Hashem purifying you, i.e. removing you from a place of exile, a place from being outside the land or a place from being outside the temple precincts. When you approach him, he purifies you and makes it as if you are a virgin. So anyway, just a little Batula drop. And Batula uh, if you interchange the top for a tet, it rearranges to betul, which means to nullify yourself. So when you nullify yourself before Shem, he makes you born again, which is the essence of teshuva, and you become like a virgin. Okay, anyway, I adjure you by the gazelles and by the hinds of the field that you stir not up nor awake love until she pleases. And that is from... Something called Kant, uh, chapter 2, verse 7, which is Shira Shireen 2-7. All right. The gazelles, which is Zevaot, which is funny because Zevaot, like Hashem Zevaot, the master of legions, says the gazelle Zebaoth, 
symbolize the king who is called Zebaot. Wow. So we are given the name of the king. That's funny. And it says the hinds represent those other principalities and powers from below that you stir not up refers to the right hand of the Holy One, which is called love. So why is God called love? Yeshua is the love of God because that's the right hand of God. Continuing, it says until she pleases, namely she, which is the Shekinah, who lies at present in the dust and in whom the king is well pleased. Blessed be he who will be found worthy to live at that time. Blessed will he be both in this world and in the world to come. Amen. So this is why it's our prayer as Lapid that we hasten the redemption and that our eyes are granted the privilege to see the return of Mashiach because it says, blessed are they who will be found worthy to live at that time when the redemption finally is complete. Continuing, oh, one of the things I want to say back on the previous page here, I'm jumping all around this because it's just that amazing. Check this out. So it says, the Messiah, however, is hidden again in the same place as before. At that time when HaKadosh Baruch Hu shall arise to renew all the worlds, the letters of his name shall shine in perfect union, i.e. when Hashem's name is one, you know, when Hashem is one and his name is one, as we say at the end of the Elenu, Shmo Echad Shmo Echad, it says this, the Yod with the hay and the hay with the Vav, a mighty star will appear in the heavens of purple hue, which by day shall flame before the eyes of the whole world, filling the firmament with its light. And at that time shall a flame issue in the heavens from the north and flame and stars shall so face each other for 40 days and all men will marvel and be afraid. And when 40 days ha shall have passed, the star and the flame shall war together in the sight of all and the flame shall spread across the skies from the north, striving to overcome the star and the rulers of and peoples of the earth shall behold it with terror, and there will be confusion among them. But the star will remove to the south and vanquish the flame, and the flame shall daily be diminished until it is no more seen. Then shall the star cleave for itself bright paths in twelve directions, which shall remain luminous in the skies for the term of twelve days. And after a further 12 days, trembling will seize the world. And at midday, the sun will be darkened as it was darkened on the day when the Holy Temple was destroyed. Insert. This is the same thing that happened when Mashiach's body was being destroyed. When his body was on the crucifixion stake, it was dark from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. Same thing with the destruction of the temple. It says so. So Mashiach's body is the like the temple. It's greater than the temple. But yeah. So that the heaven and the earth shall not be seen. Then out of the midst of thunder and lightning shall a voice be heard, causing the earth to quake and many hosts and principalities to perish. On that same day, when the voice is heard throughout the world, a flame of fire shall appear, burning in great Rome. Okay, 
so there's that so there's just some interesting things that are going to be happening with the final redemption uh there was also this thing about the name of Hashem on weapons given to Mashiach. Where was that at? Because that really takes us back to Parsha Beshalach when Hashem uh, sent us out and it says we were armed and it was the word Chumashim and it was it meant five, but it also meant spiritual uh, weapons to take down strongholds. And so those had the name, the divine name on them. Uh, so that also happened to Mashiach. Um, thought I saw that somewhere. I know it's in this section. Okay. Didn't tab it, but, uh, Rukashim. It's in here somewhere. I'm not giving up yet. Adorned with garments, six days of creation. Okay, so uh, it was with this crown that Hakadosh Baruchu adorned himself when the Israelites crossed the red, the Yam Suf, and uh, he avenged himself on the chariots of Paro and his horsemen with this same crown. He will crown King Mashiach as soon as he is crowned, and the Holy One will take him and kiss him as before. And all of that, uh, let's see, adorned with garments. Okay, girded with weapons of war. There's that. Ah, here it is. It's in, uh, it's in 8B. It says, so at the end of the 12 months, the scepter of Yehuda, namely Mashiach. That's funny. The scepter of Yehuda talked about in Bereshit, prophecy over Judah is all about Mashiach, says, will arise, the scepter of Judah, which is Mashiach, he will arise, appearing from paradise, which is Gani Din, and all the righteous will surround him and gird him with weapons of war, on which are inscribed the letters of the divine name. Then a voice will burst forth from the branches of the trees of Gani Din, arise, O ye saints from above, and stand ye before the Mashiach. So there's that. Um... Uh, Going on to 9a, it says, On that day the whole earth will be shaken from one end to the other, and thus the whole world will know that the Mashiach has revealed himself in the land of Galilee. So if we don't live in Israel, how are we going to know Mashiach is returned? Well, the whole world is going to shake. And it says, so this whole earthquake and the shofar sounds and stuff, yeah, that's that. And it says, And all who are diligent in the study of Torah, and there shall be few such in the world will gather around him. So if you're studying Torah, you're getting yourself ready for the final redemption. It's important to point out. Um, where are we at now? Let's see. There's just so much beautiful stuff here. Let me go ahead and pick from here. It says, For the merit of this generation sustains the world until the Mashiach shall appear. Okay, back that up. All right. Said Rabbi Shimeon, I'm in 9A now. It says, Behold, I was moved a while ago to meditate on the mystery of the letters of the holy name, the mystery of his compassion over his children, 
But now it is fitting that I should reveal unto this generation something that no other man has been permitted to reveal. For the merit of this generation sustains the world until Mashiach shall appear. He then bade Rabbi Eleazar his son and Rabbi Abba to stand up, and they did so. Rabbi Shimon then wept a second time and said, Alas, who can endure to hear what I foresee? The exile will drag on. Who shall be able to bear it? Man, ain't that the truth? Then he also rose and spoke thus. It is written, O Adonai, our God, other lords besides you dominated us. Apart from you, do we make mention of your name? Yeshayahu 26, 13. This verse, apart from the other interpretation, contains a profound doctrine of faith. Hashem Eloheinu is the source and the beginning of supreme mysteries indeed. This is why the, the hidden mysteries are revealed in Mashiach, because Mashiach is in Hashem. So yeah, there's that. And then it says, it is the sphere whence emanate all the burning lights. Hashem is called the father of lights, right? Because the lights come from him. So that's what Yaakov was talking about when he wrote, Hashem is the father of lights. Every good thing comes from above. Uh, continuing on, it says, and where the whole mystery of faith is centered. So faith is found in Hashem. The whole mystery of it is found in Hashem, which is found in Mashiach because Mashiach is in Hashem. He's a manifestation of Hashem. It says this name dominates all. However, other lords besides you dominated us. The people of Israel who is destined to be ruled only by this supreme name is ruled in exile by the other side. Yea, apart from you, which is Beka, do we make mention of your name? The name by you, which is Beka. Beka is the gematria of 22 and symbolizes the holy name comprising of 22 letters. And this is the name by which the community of Israel is always blessed. As, for instance, to whom you swear by your own self, which is Beka, from Shemot 2213. And it says, in you, which is Beka, shall all Yisrael, or shall Yisrael be blessed. Bereshit, I don't know this Roman numeral, XLVIII, tw uh, 20. So, 48, giving that a really big guess, 4820. For in you, Beka, I can run through the troops. Tehillim uh, XVIII. This is 2819. Uh, at the period when there is perfection, shalom, and harmony, the two names are not separated from one another, and it is forbidden, going into 9b now, to separate them even in thought or imagination. But now in exile, we do separate them, the matrona from her spouse, as she, like the matron, uh, as she, the Shekinah, lies in the dust, i.e. in exile with Israel. And apart from you, being far away from you and being ruled by other powers, we make mention of your name and separation your name being separated from the name expressed by Beka. All this in the days of exile, for the first exile begun, began 
during the first temple and lasted 70 years, during which time the mother, the Shekinah, did not brood over Yisrael, and there was a separation between the Yod and the Hay. The Yod ascending higher and higher to infinity, which is the Ain Sof, and the holy temple above, corresponding to the temple below, did not send forth living waters, its source of being cut off. The 70 years of the first exile corresponded to the seven years which it took to build the first temple, 1 Kings 6.38. However, far be it from us to think that during the time of the kingdom of Babylon had power in the heavens over Israel. They did not. The fact is that as long as the temple stood, there was a bright light descending from the supernal mother. This is the whole Sarah is Jerusalem above drop. Written in Galatians, by the way, it says, but as soon as it was destroyed through Israel's sin, the kingdom of Babylon got the upper hand. That light was covered up and darkness prevailed here below and the angels below ceased from giving out light. And then the power symbolized by the letter Yod of the holy name ascended into the upper regions, into the infinite. And thus, during the whole 70 years of exile, had no divine light to guide her. So that's the case during that. How much so for us now? Uh, there's another part in here that brings down that the mourners in Zion are the angels because they are crying about the destruction of the temple because they don't get to give forth light into the world. And Mashiach is saying you're the light of the world. So we're bringing comfort to those angels. And when we literally do the Kaddish and we talk about, you know, may Hashem comfort all who mourn in Zion as a supplicatory bracha with that bracha. We always put brachot with our brachas that we're truly praying not only for the temple to be rebuilt, but we're praying that the upper and lower Jerusalem will unite, which is Olam Haba stuff. Ultimately, that happens with the coming of Mashiach and after all the earthquaking and stuff and the, the heavens and the earth being renewed, not destroyed, but being renewed, which there will be a little of what looks like destruction because renewal, you have to die and then you have to be resurrected. So. Anyway, um, that, that's just a, that was like a lot of stuff in there, but I just wanted to show you that there's so much that is to come and everything that we're doing, it's, that's why it's so much of a, a battle for us to push and fight forth is that there's a lot that's going to occur and we get to dial down different judgments and sweeten judgments if we so merit through our teshuva, which is why, again, we're shuva heroes. We're doing everything that we can do to make shuva ourselves, but also to inspire teshuva. So all of that. And so uh, anyway, just wanted to point that out. And Kitetse, that's from uh, Zohar, volume two, Shemot. It's like a volume three. And I uh, just want to make sure that 4820 verses uh, and you, they shall find peace because uh, I was very unsure if that was right. And you, everyone, will be blessed. Uh, no, that wasn't it. Let's try 4820. Genesis 4820. Oh, my goodness, it is. He blessed them that day and said, in your name, will Yisrael pronounce this blessing? May God make you like Ephraim and Menashe. So he put Ephraim ahead of Menashe. 
So talking to the sons of Yosef, that whole in you drop the Beka, the 22, uh, we, it's through B'nai Yosef that all Israel are blessed. That is just crazy. Hmm. So let's read this in context to close. So this is 48 verses 19 through 21 and bear sheet. It says, but his father refused. He says, I know my son. He's talking to Yosef. I know. He said, he too shall become a people and he too shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So that day, Yaakov blessed them and said, by you, talking to the sons of Yosef, i.e. Ephraim and Menashe, shall all Yisrael pronounce his blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Menashe. So he put Ephraim before Menashe. Then Yisrael said to Yosef, look, I am about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Yeshua said the same things that you know, I'm sending you out into the world, giving you my peace, not as the world gives. I need you to go out and make Talmudim of all the nations. And behold, I am with you until the end of the age, because at the end of this exile, I'm going to return you back. But until then, in you will all the nations be blessed. So what do we know? What do we know? But what we get to say is Baruch Haba B'Shem Adonai. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu Torah temet, vekaye olam natabetokeinu. Baruch atah Adonai, noten ha Torah. Amen.